Hi everyone, it's Samilla from Menswear by a Woman podcast and I have an amazing guest and I've been following him quite often and quite a lot and he is Matt Henrik. Is it Henrik? Am I saying it wrong? Totally. Bring it all together, Renick. Renick. Sorry, Matt. I'm so sorry. Right, Matt. It's the story of my life. Don't worry about it. So, Matt, how did it all begin with you? Because I know for a fact that you've got a um, a magazine called the WM Brand Project, and I, and I know you're a photographer as well. Um, yeah, it kind of it started there from the photography side. Yeah, I I moved to New York um, after studying photography and art history and. Uh, moved to New York in the early 90s, well, actually 1990, right. and um, started pursuing a career in photography. That's how it all kind of started. And did that, is that with menswear as well, or was it just no fashion, well, just photography? Well, I was really, I mean, I was really into fashion, really into fashion photography, and that's what I thought, you know, I wanted to pursue, um, you know, not necessarily menswear, but kind of you know, the style world in general. So I had these, you know, illusions that I was going to become, you know, a big Vogue photographer or something like that. Um, I ended up shooting a lot for like GQ men's. um, There was a great magazine at the time called men's journal, Rolling Stone, uh, Esquire. So I did end up photographing, um, a lot in that world. And then I started working with magazines like wallpaper and Condé Nast traveler and travel and leisure and, and kind of just kind of evolved into a lifestyle point of view more than anything, which got me on the road traveling and uh, which was always sort of the underlying pursuit was to kind of get somebody to pay for me to see the world, which was a pretty good scam at that point. And how did you change into menswear? Because, you know, your menswear, the way you wear menswear, is very, very stylish. Um, well, thank you. And how did it actually go from like, oh, hold on a minute, I'm really interested in menswear, of the craftsmanship? Well, the I guess I was, I was always interested in men's clothes and men's style. I think I had good examples growing up. I think my dad had good style. And the kind of crew of men that he was friends with had, you know, kind of, great style and cool accessories and great cars. And, you know, they were the the barometer for me uh, in many, many ways. And, you know, I had an Italian grandfather who just, you know, loved, you know, would never accept anyone kind of not being dressed well or having great shoes. And, you know, I, I guess it just sort of was around me. My mom, it was really important to my mom for us to dress well. And, um, and I just think that I was really in love with looking at magazines like GQ and, and Esquire when I was younger. And, um, you know, I was a kid of the 80s. So I was, you know, at the boom of pop culture and, you know, looking at what bands were wearing and what was on television and how style was affecting all those all that kind of media. And I guess it just sort of got under my skin and I, it was important to me. So I followed it. Which style was quite important to you, though? Well, I was a big kind of Northeast preppy. Okay. So, I mean, I kind of dialed into, you know, early on, like, rag wool sweaters and vintage, you know, uh, army 
khaki twill chinos and deck shoes. And, you know, I was like, I mean, as a kid of the eighties, I was a real classic, you know, preppy and the preppy handbook was sort of my Bible. And, um, and all the guys that I hung out with, with all that stuff was important to them too. Like how you wore your shoes, how you wore your jacket, what, what Harris tweed was appropriate for what moment in the winter season, you know, it was like all that stuff. And we were big thrift store hounds. So we were kind of picking out all our um, men's style points by, you know, finding that the economy of the thrift stores. And uh, I would say that was a big style influence as I was, um, as I was growing up in that period. And then once I started making money to buy clothes, then I was kind of dialing into a, you know, I was in New York at the time in the early nineties. So there was brands like, you know, Agnes B and APC, yeah. these kind of French cool, yeah. um, these kind of urban brands that, you know, that I just immediately gravitated to it because they were a slightly more elevated version of my kind of preppydom right. in a way. Okay. So how do you, th- what do you think of menswear now at the moment? Uh, well, I think there's, there's a few camps, right? There right. is, you know, the, luxury goods world of men's fashion, which, you know, leans into a lot of theater as far as I'm concerned. And then, you know, you have, I think, really classic tailoring that I think is, you know, found its niche um, in a new generation of not just kind of older guys, and which I really, really like. Like, I love these this group of tailor friends that I have in New York, like Jake, you know, Jake Muser and... Um, yeah my friend Angel Ramos at 18th Amendment. And, you know, and I, you know, these are young guys producing, designing and, you know, and having manufactured what would be considered really traditional menswear, men's suiting and knits. And I just think the way they put it together um, not only speaks to me, but I, you know, and I think it speaks to a wide age group um, from 18 to 80. And I kind of love that, that window. And I always felt like, you know, I'm still that preppy from upstate New York, but now I think I just, you know, dress in better fabrics and better cuts and, you know, I'm lucky enough to have clothes made for me. So, but my style points haven't deviated much and I'm glad I kind of didn't follow topical trends and kind of stick to the classics. And then you know, your wardrobe has definitely has more legs with that. Do you think men are following trends or do you think everyone has this individual taste now? That, you know, I think, that's, I think that some groups follow fashion trends and some group, you know, I mean, even following trad style is sort of a, had become a trend, sort of what yeah. denim and salvage and workwear was in the kind of early 90s in this kind of Americana moment uh, of like that kind of made in USA workwear, but still what I liked about those elements is that they still had their roots in real kind of great traditional manufacturing design, even though maybe the fits changed a little bit, but the, the material was the same. I think, you know, when I was working in magazines in the nineties and yeah. uh, particularly when I was working with wallpaper magazine, which was at the kind of forefront of design and lifestyle at that period, you know, all those guys were wearing like shiny nylon Prada suits. Yeah. And that was, and that was the, you know, that was the style of the time. Like that, that meant like you were really dialed in. And I remember saying to my wife, do do I really have to buy one of those shiny nylon suits? (laughs) 
And um, thankfully, I didn't. I mean, I did lean into Prada knitwear and things like that. And I still, I think the best dop kit ever made ever is a nylon Prada dop kit. But I luckily, none of that material found its way into my suiting. Do you think um, with some of the top names of menswear, do you think they're still top? Like Prada? Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm in Rome now and I was in Gucci a couple days yeah. ago. Yeah. And I, I went in there to kind of take a deep dive um, into, because, you know, I'm a huge Gucci fan. Like I'm a huge, like Gucci loafer fan. And, yeah. you know, I have vin- vintage Gucci knits and uh, neckties and all those kind of great accessories. Right. And I, you know... I, and I do think Gucci really, when you kind of peel back the layers of how things are styled for the runway or for the lookbook mm-hmm. or for the ad campaigns, yeah. you know, it is pretty, you know, site specific in terms of how things look. But if you really dial it back and you separate all those pieces, there's some really beautiful tailoring there. And I do think the luggage is really fantastic. And, you know, because it's, it's harking back to some of their, vintage or heritage design and you know i see kind of old geezery guys in very conservative gray flannel suits in the streets of rome carrying an interlocked g like garment bag and i think it's the chicest thing ever so i think it's like how do you take elements of these brands and not just wear head-to-toe runway looks you know um but i do think these kind of classic italian brands for example like prada and gucci i mean i still shop elements of of what they have but i'm never going to wear head to toe runway looks no, i think i would just look, look I, absurd i don't think a lot of people do nowadays do they especially men you know i'm constantly surprised when i go to an airport <laughs> and i see some guy in a head to toe like dior and blazered you know and I probably get a lot of messages you know? and saying to me you're so wrong yeah, like I mean, right down to like like the little Dior cross body bag, and I'm just yep. sort of like, really, like, can't we just have one of those things? Do we have to have? And after a while, it just kind of looks like it looks like a costume to me. Well, what's the worst kind of clothing you've seen on on someone that you just think, oh my god, it, this looks so wrong? You've got to, and you feel like going up to them and saying, what are you doing? Why are you wearing this? Well, well, it's funny. I'll roll my eyes when I see a full Balenciaga get up or just kind of Dior head to toe, like <laughs> labeled stuff. Like I'll roll my eyes, but I don't really cringe as much as I see, like I'm in Rome now and I just see, you know, schlubby American middle-aged men in like t-shirts and cargo shorts and, you know, dramatically comfortable shoes. And I don't know. I just like, it just seems like nobody's really making an effort or trying and it's all under this guise of oh you know i have to be comfortable you know but i don't know i've seen incredibly chic looking gentlemen on the street who of all ages that seem well styled and pretty comfortable without having to be in a like whatever like branded t-shirt and cargo shorts yeah is comfort more important than being stylish I, I think you have to ask, I think people have to ask the question. Like I've had guys who are friends of the family or, you know, friends of friends say to yeah. me like, oh, how do I get better style? Yeah. And I say, I say to them, well, is it important to you? Like, is it, is, is it as equally as important to you as your like stock portfolio or the car you drive or your status in life? Like, is, right. it, is, it, is it important to you? And a lot of the times they'll say, 
no, it's, it's actually not. And I'm like, well, fine. Then you don't have to worry about me. You know, like if it's not important to you, then don't worry about it. But if it is somehow important to you, then I think it's important to place the effort on. I mean, it is important to me. So I do like, you know, looking as best as I can or as a style as I like to be. So, um, and that's, I mean, believe it, I mean, granted, I do have a pair of camo cut off cargo shorts that I wear when I'm upstate at the farm, but I'm not wearing them in the streets of Rome, you know? <laughs> no, that'd be too much, wouldn't it? No. No. So what, what's very, what's at the moment, what's trendy for menswear, do you think? I mean, I'm, I think as we're dialing into my favorite dressing season, which is fall. Yeah. I, you know, I've seen this kind of, you know, this point of view that's this kind of heavy woolen tweeted Donegal, you know, uh, layered suiting and heavy wool. And um, I, I'm really, I, I lean very heavily into that, that look, not only for the practical reasons that if, you know, me living in the Northeast where it gets really cold, yeah, but I mean, if you can kind of keep the moths off the stuff, it just lasts forever. Yeah. It always, it always looks relevant in modern, you know, I was in Scotland a few days ago and, you know, the, the estate manager who was a really older guy in a kind of beat up barber in a Donegal sweater and a wool cap, you know, it, it, nothing looked better than that guy. Yeah. And you know, and now, now I look at like Ralph Lauren Polo and they're kind of leaning into their their roots with kind of heavy tweeds and Donegals and patch uh, patch herringbone cardigans. And I'm just like, it just looks great and it looks timeless. And I think as I get older, I just want things that are going to seem that way, like I've had them forever. And um, And I also think that's a practical way to kind of spend your money on clothes, you know, kind of buy those basics once and keep them forever. And I think if you can find your style stride and um, dial into what that is, then you don't have to be following trends and playing catch up. You already have it. What do you think of the new brands of menswear? Well, I like Noah quite a bit yeah. in New York. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I guess, you know, I'm not their ideal customer, but I kind of admire how the kind of st the kind of supreme esque skatewear has kind of turned into a more, you know how it's designed for a more mature audience and the materials yeah. that's done and you know I've never actually owned a, a a brand that my daughter who's 19 wants to take it from me you know and <laughs> unless it was you know like I, I they I had a pair of these Noah white. Um, like kind of painter's pants that were so great. And I lost them immediately to my daughter. And, <laughs> um, and, and I, I really think they were doing kind of beautifully smart things that um, uh, I think translated to me as a middle-aged guy who doesn't skateboard, but kind of admires where that yeah. culture kind of found its way. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, but I guess the, the, the new, there's these little micro brands that pop up yeah. like, there's one in America called Quaker Marine, and I really like what those guys are doing. They're kind of taking that New England style kind of seaside fisherman and kind of creating an urban interpretation of that, which I really like with like heavy knits and 
wool chore coats and uh, chambray. And I just think I can't get enough of that in my life. You know, I would say those, those brands that are doing kind of smart, active leisure wear, I mean that for lack of a better word, right? Like more casual stuff than, um, I, I really like, you know, these kind of, these guys who are doing stuff like that. I think my friend Sid Mashburn down in Atlanta has kind of taken preppy Southern style to a really refined level and is, you know, doing things under his label now. Like he couldn't find the most perfect polo shirt. So he made the perfect polo shirt. And, I, and you know, I, I find shirt, like, Matt? sorry, what's a perfect polo shirt? Well, I like these polo shirts. Like I like Sid's long sleeve polo shirts because they're tapered in the arm. So they okay. fit under a jacket really nicely. Right. It's a it's a single collar construction, so it stands up oh, when it's right. unbuttoned yep, and yep, just yep. kind of loose, loose, you know. And, and when it's laundered and soft, yeah, it yeah. just you know it feels like you know it feels like the best version of the of you know of the polo that you wanted to wear it to your fantasy country club, which I certainly <laughs> was never a member of, but I can imagine what that's like, right? <laughs> but there. <laughs> they're great to travel with because I can wear them. The long sleeve one I could wear to the pool. I roll it up. I, it looks great under a blue blazer. There's just a lot of versatility to it, you know? Right. Um, and I'll buy long sleeve because then I'll roll it up because then I'll be yeah. Preppy's coming you know? back though, isn't it? Preppy look. I, I mean, I it never went it ever, away. But I don't you know, think it ever, it never, never went, went anywhere away. in my it, life. It just comes back as it reinvents itself, does it? I think it does. A well, little I bit. think, I think preppy, particularly American preppy that finds its roots in English, kind of traditional English tailoring. Yeah. Um, I, I think it, you know, it's so good. It's so dialed in and with a few tweaks, you know, fits, you know, fits within style trends, you know, if that's yeah. a lapel size or, you know, a cut of the jacket or, or whatever. Um, but I, you know, I, I think Ralph Lauren is a great example of, how, you know, this kind of traditional American dressing that found its roots in a little bit of Southern Italy and a lot of, uh, of like English dressing, kind of traditional dressing, really looks modern and thoughtful and, and, and great. And, you know, and I feel that, um, you know, I will lean into that kind of dressing paired with, you know, my love for soft Italian tailoring. So would you say, um, well, actually, what's your, which tailoring is your favorite, Italian, American, or British? Okay, so you're ready for this. I will say that the perfect world is the combination of the three. So I, my friend Jake Muser in New York, he, he, you know, he's a kid who grew up in New Hampshire in the Northeast, studied tailoring, Grew up in the kind of American vernacular of tailoring. Right. But, you know, it, as a deep, deep love affair with this kind of Neapolitan soft shoulder, soft jacket construction. Mm-hmm. Um, but we all love or we, we both love uh, English fabrics. So right. I love those heavy. I love Harris, heavy Harris tweeds. And, you know, Jake has been making me these suits that kind of combine the love of those three cultures. So right. heavy English fabrics. Heavy, heavy, heavy English cloth, you know, or like Fox Brothers flannels with soft Italian, no canvas construction in the jacket. Yeah. I mean, these, these, these fabrics kind of hold up on their own a- a- anyway. Yep. 
And and then, you know, with touches of kind of great American preppydom, which is, you know, a flat front trousered kind of slightly tapered to the ankle, which is like the pant that I've been wearing since I was in high school, you know. So and uh, I, I just think that to me is the is the best of all worlds. I, I just find, you know, if I went to strict English tailoring, I think with yeah. all that canvas and those rope shoulders, it gets a little bit too uh, kind of strict for me. That's yeah. why I like those loose Italian um, uh, soft construction, but I love heavy English cloth. Yeah. I, I just, I, I would always have to live in a cold climate because of my love for that stuff. Tailoring's coming back quite a bit, I think. I mean, there was a point where, you know, during the COVID and during the pandemic, that tailoring, suiting and everything was kind of burning out. But, you know, it's, it's silly to say that, you know, suiting will never be like how it used to be. But I don't think that's the case. I think it's, it's I can see more of it now. I think it's become more of a choice for people rather than an obligation obligation where, you know, there was this obligation if you're going to show up in an office or your job, you'd had to be suited. Yeah. yeah. But now I think it's sort of out of out of choice to kind of, I don't know, feel good about yourself or feel slightly more dialed in. And I think after two and a half years of people being in leisure wear and track suits and whatever, or not wearing pants at all, that um it, it's nice to dress again. And I, and I, I like the ritual of it. And I think it's, I feel good when I'm, you know, have to put on a suit or a jacket or, mm-hmm. you know, something that fits me nicely and presents well. I just, I don't know. I feel good about myself that way more than I do in just a pair of like pull on track pants. What made you want to do a magazine as well? So I started, well, you know, the, the abbreviation of that, title is William Brown because that was the or that is the name of the Mar Farm in upstate New York but the idea came was uh, well first of all I was in I am in love with magazines and I always have been in love with magazines and I started my career working with magazines and as as that world as the digital landscape changed the way um you know magazines were, were no longer being produced and it changed the way media was being produced and and also, I was always navigating several titles uh, to kind of, you know, to, for me to be interested in magazines. So I was buying a, a food magazine, buying a car magazine separately, right. buying a men's style magazine. And I always kind of wanted that all under one roof. Yeah. So I just felt that it was my duty to yeah. create this magazine um, with all of my interests selfishly under one roof and hopefully I wasn't alone. Like hopefully there was a a group of other people out there that would, you know, like this point of view. And I, I guess I was right that there were, you know, it is a a group of people out there that buy it and like it. And, um, and also there's not many magazines out there anymore to kind of support, support that kind of magazine habit. So I just felt like for me, I needed to perpetuate the idea of this printed thing, you know. Was it difficult to start it though? Was it difficult to actually do the magazine? Um, I found that creating the magazine is for me 
was not difficult because it was sort of all I knew. And my wife was a creative director at Condé Nast. And, right. you know, we, I kinda had, we had this kind of in, you know, we had this in-house team of yeah. two and we had great access to great photography and, you know, we knew how to produce good ideas. The, the thing that is difficult is understanding the distribution of getting those things out there in the world. And that learning curve is massive. And, you know, we were kind of laughing. We were like, okay, we know how to make a magazine, but we don't know how to distribute the magazine. Right. So all that, that's like develop. And also it's just like developing a new language yeah. or learning a new language, like to figure out how to get something to market, which is always the most difficult thing. But, you know, we had really smart people around us that were like in the bag, in the magazine business that like held our hands on the kind of production end of things. And on the, how do you get money out of people and how do you find a way to get things in the mail to people that buy stuff? Like that is, that's a huge learning curve. Um, But we've, we're getting better and better at it, I think. Do you think it's, I mean, you know, with all the students coming out from fashion um, universities and, and, you know, creative universities, do you think it, it is difficult to find a job? Do you, think it's, do you think it's much more, was it much more harder when you started or do you, do you guys realize how hard it is now? Well, I'm going to say something really that's going to sound ridiculous, but I never had a job. I oh, never okay. had a real job. Okay. I think the last the last real job that yeah. I had was either working in the movie theater in high school or working as an intern at some horrible financial term uh, at financial office. Right. Those were like the only after that I only ever was like a freelancer kind of street hustling to find jobs to work for the day and that's sort of how the photo business worked when I moved to New York like I would be a photo assistant for the day in one studio and then maybe get a two day gig here. And then they would never call back. So like I was constant, I was like losing my job every single day because I was just this freelance um, grunt in a way, you know? So, and then when I started working as a photographer, it was sort of the same thing, just amplified. Right. Um, and so I never real, I never had this, like nine to five show up at an office job my, my entire life. So I kind of developed this very kind of callous, um, emotional callous of dealing with, you know, losing jobs, you know? So, <laughs> um, it's a good way of doing it. I, right? never, I, I never really thought about it before until started, people started me asking me these questions and, and it was true. Like I, I lost my job every single week, one way or another. And I had to find a new job every single week. And that was the life of a freelance yeah, photographer. And then, so kind of reinventing myself became the norm and kind of adjusting points of view and behavior to modify myself for the workplace just became who I was. And um, I guess that was a very good strategy at the end of the day, because I, I didn't have this emotional impact of like, yeah. oh, I guess I'm not going to be hired again. And that really sucks. And I'm going to, you know, curl up in a fetal position. And, you know, that's just not how it worked. Like I had to go find the next thing. You know, and in 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 you know in the digital climate that was dramatically changing my photo career, I remember just looking at the landscape and saying, 
okay, now I have to reinvent this again. Like I have to figure out how to, you know, survive this next wave of change. And it really was a survival instinct um, more than anything. I know you've written quite a few, um, a few books, and I just wanted to know what's your next plan on, are you thinking of doing any other books? I am in the middle or just putting the final touches on, uh, on a cookbook actually. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I, it's, you know, it's more of this kind of lifestyle book about my life at the, the William Brown farm. Um, right. But it's, ba- it's based on a food journal that I've kept that um, I went wow. to my publisher who I did the, the watch car and then yeah. the most recent cocktail books with who they're an amazing, they published some phenomenal cookbook authors. And uh, I said, you know, I've kept this journal of recipes and meals that were important to me that we were having at the farm. And, and what do you think about this? And they said, well, we think this is a book. And I was like, wow, that's, that's cool. So, you know, and because I'm not a chef, I'm just a kind of, you know, cook with some, with some knowledge, home cook, you know, I really want this book to be about the life that I lead outside, you know, the city, which is on the farm and how that point of view um, is, is very much in contrast to my city life, but also a very important one to me and how we see that whole experience uh, through the food experience. Wow. So that's coming out soon, is it? Is it this year or? That, that will be fall of 2023 next oh, year. 2023. Who's your favorite menswear designer? Do you have a favorite brand? Actually, not a designer, as a brand, menswear brand. I mean, I, I, love, I love Ralph Lauren. I mean, okay. I just, I, 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 you know, when I look back to the, the, the photographs, the lifestyle, the imagery that propelled my love for kind of style or the yeah. fantasy of, of that life, it was, it was Ralph Lauren ads, you know? Right. I mean, I would say also in that period, it was also Calvin Klein, mm-hmm. You know, uh, but, you know, or even Perry Ellis in those days of like the early 90s. But I would say over the longevity of my interest in style from that high school kid to middle age, I would say that Ralph Lauren has been the most impacting, uh, has been, has had the most impact on me and and actually, um, and actually me buying stuff and wanting to buy stuff and wanting to own stuff and wanting to have it a part of my life. And that comes from, you know, also these sub brands that they were doing like denim and supply or rugby. Like I, I just felt that, um, or double RL, like it was always done so well. And there was elements of it that always spoke to that, um, those, that part of me that really loved style that, um, I would say consistently that is the, you know, that was the American brand, um, to this day that I still really, really, really like. I mean, is there any other brands that you can think of that you think, you know, you know, menswear that you adore? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that the, the Italians that have kind of taken over the world, like Canali and Brunello, Cuccinelli yeah. and, uh-huh. you know, I, I, what? You know, you have, and then you have like 
smaller tailoring houses that I really like that in Florence, like Liberano yep. or, or, you know, even the impact of a, of a brand like Rubinacci out of Naples. I just think we, we live in this amazing time where, you know, there's access to all this stuff via the internet, which right. does. So, you know, you can go, you can have a made to measure suit done by Liberano now in, um, in Florence by via video conference and you choose your fabrics and, you know, your suit comes to you like fitting perfectly, you know? And I, I just think that's incredibly exciting. Um, I think that, uh, you know, you still have brands like J crew in the States that are yeah. making strides to kind of keep up um, with quality and thoughtful design and, and, you know, again, my friend Sid Mashburn in, in Atlanta, who has, you know, he has outposts in Atlanta, Houston, and Los Angeles. And, you know, and he's talking to a whole other world of men in that kind of Southern hemisphere, you know, in that kind of middle swath of the Southern parts of the U.S. Where, I mean, stylistically, there's, you know, slightly different priorities in the points of view. And, um, I would like to say that I like to spread the, you know, the wealth of my knowledge and currency across, you know, all those kinds of brands. I don't really stay faithful to one. <laughs> if you went into my closet, I would say like, you know, my suiting would you know, be a lot of suiting would be made by my friend Jake, just because, you know, we have this shorthand with each other with design and he's incredibly generous and the same thing with my friend Angel. And then, you know, Sid with sportswear and Ralph with, you know, heavy knits and, you know, um, outerwear. And, you know, I guess I'm, I'm kind of grabbing the best style points of view out of all these, these demographics and kind of creating a single point of view, which is me. Um, but there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of crossover, I think, stylistically, you know, um, from Brunello cashmere to Levi 501s, you know, I think yeah. that my wardrobe is an evolution of, you know, how I found style growing up. So how, with with all your knowledge and your experience, um, what would you say to someone who wants to start in photography at the moment, or go into um, fashion? Um, I, I just think I, I mean, I, I just say just start doing it. Like you just have to start doing it. And you you you, you know I when I started out as wanting to be a photographer. My father was yeah. a commercial graphic artist and a sign painter and, yeah. and a very serious amateur photographer. And he was like, you know, Matt, you know, there photographers are a dime a dozen out there. Like, how are you going to make an impact yeah. on, on this thing that you want to do? Yeah. And I guess I really thought about it and I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to do the best I possibly can. Like, I'm just going to be focused and do the best. And my dad was like, well, that's a great start. Like that is the great start. Like find, you know, finding some kind of confidence to be like, no, I, I need to do this and execute this. And, you know, the, I know this sounds very cliche, but like people find you, like when people see passion in you, yes. they want to be a part of that. 
and then that just ends up propelling and and projecting the career. I think that I was very very persistent and focused and surrounded myself with really uh, helpful, thoughtful people that carried me on that journey. If yeah. that was you know either hiring me or giving me the moral support to to go on. And I think that's, that's like any pursuit and journey, like having that support system is important and having laser focus is helpful. Uh, Even though I was not always laser focused, I, um, I definitely had my eye on the prize and, uh, and I just stuck with it. And um, I used to work for this photographer named Horst P. Horst, very famous photographer. Yeah. And he had this very kind of, you know, uh, international accent, right? Right. And I, I remember saying to him, oh, Horace, I'm so frustrated. I'm trying to find my way in being a photographer. And, you know, I look the span of your career and, you know, how epic that is. And, and he looked at me and he said, oh, just, just do what you love, baby. Just do what you love. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, wow, that's so that's, simple. That's very simple. But it's very simple, but it's, it, it is very it is very true. Like yeah, 100%. I, and I do think when looking back on, back on that, that was kind of great advice. Um, because even if you're, you know, even if you're not making the amount of money that you want to be making and you're, you have to make sacrifice, at least if you're doing something that you really care about and love yeah, rather than you're miserable about, uh, miserable with, then I, I do think that is very thoughtful advice. And I do think people want to be around people that are loving and enjoying what they, they, I think um, they I do. Think you and and that is, that is a great path to success by, um, I think by kind of being careful and loving your pursuits. Well, you know, I when, I was, when I was, when I was telling people and, you know, when we were watching magazines crumble all around us yeah. and like losing, losing ad dollars and closing shop and having crappy paper and not appreciating photographers and underpaying writers. And, you know, I just, we, we were like, well, of course we should be making a magazine to fill the void of all this stuff that's going away. And everyone thought we were crazy. And yeah, we, sh- we surely were a little bit nutty about it, but we, it was all we knew and we knew it made us dramatically happy to pursue it. So I guess there is a little bit of that secret sauce in there. And it's weird because, um, you know, um, I, I, I didn't want to be a menswear designer. I wanted to be an astrophysicist, but, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, saying that, um, but I had an eye about, um, menswear and I remember seeing my dad's suits and I talk about this quite often and my dad taught me how to do a man's tie when I was about seven years old. And I used to love the way my dad would dress, like very classic tailored garments. And my mum would wear the most amazing, beautiful saris. So my world was, you know, of two cultures, my British culture and the Indian culture. And, yeah. you know, my father always said, um, always do something that you love and you're passionate about. No matter what anybody throws at you and no matter what obstacles you come across, always be true to yourself. And I think that's how, you know, menswear stuck with me. And I didn't know there was a such career as, as a menswear designer. You know, when you're seven, you just don't know all of this because you're thinking, no, I want to be an astronaut. <laughs> Yeah, right. You um, want to be an astrophysicist. Yeah, I wanted to be an astrophysicist. And it was like always in, and I'm still 
um, I still read books on science, um, you know, all of about space and about moon, all of that about planets. But at the same time, being passionate about menswear is what got me to do this podcast. And you're absolutely well, right. I would, I would also, I would also say that, um, you know, there's a lot of science and a lot of specificity and a lot of exact math that goes into good menswear, I think. So, God knows I've had some miscalculations made that have just been disastrous. So, um, but I think that, you know, I have been in positions in my career that from the outside look like a great opportunity where a lot of money was being made and it was very high profile. And I don't know, I, I, but I was really unhappy and very so miserable that it began to affect me physically. Yeah. And And it affects you mentally as well. And, And that's where you're just like, this sucks. And, and luckily, you know, I had, you know, Yolanda in my life that I could say, Hey, listen, I, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. It's just like destroying me. It's beating me up. Yeah. And to have somebody say like, then you shouldn't be doing it. Let's find the thing that you should be doing. I mean, that requires an amazing support system to give you the confidence to do that. And, and I do think, I, I don't know if I could have just done it alone, but I do know that that period of time, which on paper looked great, I was very unhappy. So So on that note, I'd like to thank you, Matt, for speaking with me and telling everyone that, you know, do what you love the most. Would you agree? Yeah. Totally, 100%. And be passionate about it. I think passion goes, uh, goes a long way and can get you very far. For thank- sure. Thank you very much, Matt, for joining me on Men's Way by Warren podcast, even though I don't come from journalism. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, until next time. See ya. Definitely. <laughs>